I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of Rackin and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In this episode, we talked about understanding analyst reports and engaging with analysts and how the analysts shape the industry and the industry shapes the analysts. It's a fascinating thing to understand how every part of this ecosystem has to work together in order for us to build serviceable technology. Fundamentally, we count on the analysts to help understand what's ready and what the problems are and what's working or not working in the enterprise. Um, it's easy to pitch stuff. It's much harder to use stuff and sell, sell tech. Um, and the analysts are actually a pretty reasonable filter for that. Uh, you'll enjoy this discussion because we really break down sort of how and why and some of the pressures that uh, go into the market and into the analyst. Enjoy. The topic we had on, on schedule is one I'm, I'm interested to talk more about. Martez, I think this was one for you. It was uh, reading the tea leaves of analyst notes. Gartner, Gartner Hype Cycles, Quadrants, Foresters. And, and I know I spend a fair bit of time reading these reports. Uh, it'd be fun to talk through. Are they, <laughs> are they, can you trust them? Are they legitimate? What do they, you know, what, how do you, how do you look at them? Looking at hype cycles and uh, the quadrants and all that stuff. I think it's, it's be fun. I'd love to hear what y'all think of those. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting for me um, as I, I chat with them sometimes and and read what comes out of whether it's the the, the top top ten trends for the next ten years or next five years or whatever it might be. Uh, of course, it's understanding there they're taking a, a bit of a stab in the dark, um, yeah. but also based upon feedback they're hearing from from their customers and the, the interest they're seeing from the market, they're trying to make a an educated guess as to, to how things are moving uh, and also in a position where they're for, for better or for worse, they're, they're going to have some influence over what customers are thinking about, over what vendors are thinking about uh, from a, a feature capability standpoint within their products. So there's definitely some, some level of influence into the market as it relates to that. I think one of the, the challenges I often see is like, like many things, there's often a bit of a disconnect between what they're they're talking about and, and pushing and what the the actuality is sort of in the trenches. But that's in a, a similar fashion to to many that are talking about a particular topic and may not have the the practical experience or or practical knowledge uh, about a given thing and talking in it in more theoretical terms. Uh, I often allude to the the aspect of automation, trying to automate something of having been been in the trenches and, and constantly in the trenches. And I often hear people talk about automate, 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 and as though it's you're just going to crank out something in a, a, a matter of a few minutes and it's going to be fully automated, not understanding the the nuance <laughs> and the the yeah. pain that goes into to automating things. But. So do you think that they, I mean, the, the ones I talk to usually do have an industry background. <laughs> they do, but yeah, some of the challenge becomes like with most things. <laughs> I should it, be careful. I should be careful. I, I have a lot of respect for, for, it, for them in general. Yeah, I mean, they they they, they definitely do. A, I think, in general, a, a very good job. Some of the challenges understanding that nuance of if you've been 
been out of the the direct interaction for let's say a, a couple of years, five or five or so years, then while you do have the certainly the the fundamental knowledge and the fundamental background, you're still taking a in essence a, a secondhand uh, sort of approach or secondhand experience in in many cases because uh, I know oftentimes they're they're pretty slammed. Uh, in in terms of creation of content and back-to-back meetings. And and so there's not, I don't think there's as much time to sort of tinker and and delve into some of that. So it's a a little bit less of a hands-on experience for them. Yeah. No, that's, that's for certain. Um, It's the interesting, because the thing I, let let me, let me, I used to really uh, discount their knowledge. Um, in industry, um, like I would, it, it always felt like they were out of step or they were, they were missing. But part of that was I was always doing startups or from a vendor perspective, like pushing the new, new. And I, I do think that they, they actually have a lot of those conversations that you're talking about and they're pretty pragmatic about what their customers can absorb from that perspective. I mean, maybe that's a mix mixed bag on this it's like you know the they're they're sort of governing what they recommend or what they talk about based on what enterprises can actually you know use but i mean it's an interesting filter yeah i mean that's ultimately understanding the the reality of just life um And, and while everybody is and it's it's from a, a business standpoint, it's from a, a personal standpoint is understanding that everybody's not going to be the, the Michael Jordan or the, the LeBron James and, and understanding that there's there, there's constraints that we, we all have to deal with either personally or a, as a business and, and to to not dismiss those and just say, you know what? I want my company to be the the next Netflix from a, a technology innovation standpoint, or I, I want to be Google. And it's it's being realistic about it. Okay, we don't have the revenue to or the the funds to commit to technology like a, a Google or a Netflix, or, or and conversely, we're unable to pay a, a premium for uh, IT professionals. And so, understanding the the aspects that come along with that, certainly uh, skills gap is one of the things that's that's constantly talked about and so if we're we're being realistic about what that actually means to an individual business or an enterprise how can we we work within the the confines or some of the the practical challenges that we have uh as it relates to the our ability to either skill our own people up or to bring in uh, additional talent or resources oh do you do you think that limits the advice that they can give for for this, where they they have to, you know, even if it's a cool new technology, solve a whole bunch of problems. They there's definitely a um, filter of, you know, it's too dis. Well, I, I, they cover disruptive stuff. Um, it, yeah, I don't I don't know if I would call it limiting more so than just the in many ways the right approach. Because um, as an example, as a consultant, you go into to an organization and certainly you could uh, recommend the latest and greatest technology. But if none of the people at the company have experience, it's still very immature in the sense of there's not a whole lot of people that know it. And maybe you're an expert at it. 
you're you're less likely to recommend that as opposed to something that is quote unquote older or more established just because you understand that the moment you walk out the door somebody else is going to have to care and feed for it so is is that a framing benefit for this where we're part of what they're they're doing is looking at sort of the, this broader picture of of how things fit within the system yeah i mean I, I think ultimately that that's that's their that's their value proposition is we understand our customer base uh, which is which is enterprise large enterprise organizations, organizations um oftentimes yeah, regardless of the industry um sometimes with a, an industry focus in mind but understanding what all comes along with that both in terms of uh skills of, of available technical resources um risk aversion in terms of are they likely to uh, adopt the the latest and greatest technology and all of the the implications that come along with it um as well as what's their ability to actually be able to to execute on something whether it be something uh like a kubernetes that is going to take a while and is likely a, a large shift or a massive shift from what has previously been done. I mean, those are those are all really real factors that I think oftentimes, as I know for me as a former consultant, you, you sort of think through in the back of your head when you're even recommending a solution or, or attempting to, to roll something out. There's a weird component with this um, that you, you've got me thinking through of like, how much forward-looking radar? And I, I want to talk about hype cycle specifically in a minute. But um, like, if you look at Kubernetes, and you know, if I'm an enterprise, I need to know that something like Kubernetes is coming. But you know, they they don't want to you know, recommend Mesos, <laughs> right? If 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 Kubernetes is going to win, um, that. God, I, you know, I, I hadn't really thought through the pressure in some ways of, of what they're doing because they need to be like, okay, these are things coming in your radar. You know, how do you evaluate which one you're going to put weight behind? And, and they, have, they, they have the risk of, you know, picking winners or picking, making advice that, you know, really doesn't stand the test of time. Yeah, I mean that's it's a, that's it's a lot more it's a lot more responsibility <laughs> than I usually think. Yeah, it's that def, definitely implications to it, and, and as I mentioned, both from the both from the vendor side, uh, oftentimes vendors are, are looking to to ensure that the analysts are fully aware of what their product, their platform, their solution does from a, a market standpoint, as well as taking feedback from the analysts based upon conversations they've had with customers or things their customers are looking at. And, and of course, vice versa, in which the, the customers are, are similarly looking for input in regards to which path or which direction they should start to look at and, and evaluate. Yeah. I, I think the extent to which they're listening to these customers' problems and amplifying those problems is that's really useful, right? Because I mean, this is, we, we're we're warming up with Kubernetes, and you know, you have to understand what problems Kubernetes solves before you're, you know, can recommend Kubernetes or not. Um, and I, I don't think most tech doesn't start that way. <laughs> um, or, I mean, I guess it does, but not in the general sense. So you've got an enterprise, they have to, you have to frame it back to what an enterprise needs to do or where they think they need to go. 
Well, and, and of course, also it also becomes a situation where there, there's only only certain or so many technologies to, to even recommend or, or proposition. Um, and, and so yeah. you, you get to a point where, of course, Kubernetes has, has become a big enough thing where you, you have to talk about it and you have to, to address it or assess it or, or figure out uh, the best path forward. And of course, especially at this point, you look at, let's say, okay, organizations are a little adverse to potentially Kubernetes as an example. Maybe they're looking for another solution, another option. As an analyst firm, are you you inclined to lean lean in to uh, ensuring that there, there's other options that are being articulated or, or communicated? Or in many ways, do you simply just double down on Kubernetes because that's what the overwhelming <laughs> consensus that you're getting? And so it becomes a case of, are they in the business of, of helping to ensure that multiple options are, are presented or certainly look at what the, the large market is, is looking to address? I, it, it's hard because you, you want to be able to find innovative solutions in the middle of all this stuff. But there's certain, there is certainly a... Um, um, you know, they, they, they're, I know, cause it's hard as a startup to break through this stuff, hard to get on their radar. Well, you've got a certain amount of customer traction. So you've got to catch 22 in that perspective. And it's reasonable, but it's, you know, I've seen things break through that, um, you know, an analyst gets really excited about something, you know, and I'll, I'll, Maybe there's well, maybe it's marketing getting through for their customers, and their customers are calling up and asking. Because um, it's it's definitely inquiry driven. People are asking about something like the Kubernetes stuff. In part, was driven by people asking, "Hey, what's this Kubernetes? Can you tell you know tell me about it?" Mm-hmm. Hey guys. Hey, hey Wilson. You have a yeah, on, I, on analyst reports. Love um. Yeah. So yeah, I, I heard also talking about consulting. Um I did a uh so this is generally speaking, there's the, the, the idea of generic solutions that are out there and then you've got integrate or implementing those solutions within some base, most likely some company or whatever. I did a book review, I don't know, like four or five years ago on Peter Block work. He's got a bunch of books out there just about consulting, but this one has a silly name, Flawless Consulting, but kind of a decent review of consulting in general, and it takes a strong position on the form of consulting where you basically, first it defines consulting. So basically, you really are saying, here's a direction you should go instead of what they call being a pair of hands. So you're doing what they are asking you to do. You're, you're actually advising them, but besides that, so can this, you know, is this a real thing? Yes, it is. Well, how does it work? Well, they take the strong position on you really surveying and questioning, I heard you talk about inquiring, but you're questioning the, the base. So this would be basically the company. You're at, you need to be able to 
have a strong idea, whether it be from having a relationship with, with them from meetup groups or you're directly coming in and questioning them, so on and so forth, about the problem. So if we were to say Kubernetes, okay, the buzz is out there. That's one side. That's a generic solution. But internally, the, the idea is that the solution is always internal to this base in some nugget form. And then you really take it, you tease it out from that base. And so you get buy-in because they're already a part of the solution. And they're the ones close to the problem. <laughs> yeah. They're close to the problem. So they're already thinking about the specific problem. What, what is it? Inventory management, networking. We were just talking about EBPF last, last week, whatever. And then, but, and then you, they hear about Kubernetes or they hear about some other generic solution, but they're the ones that actually solve the problem. And what you're doing is teasing it out and really selling it to the rest of the, uh, up the chain, up the hierarchy and, and horizontally. So you, Garter and all these other things are the generic, at the seeding, but the real is, I'd say the real, but the other half that's really not talked about is internal. And that's where it becomes interesting to, to take what the the buzzword is uh, and, and actually drive it through to implementation. Even we take the example of eBPF, uh, which we talked about last week. Uh, if the the analysts are talking about eBPF, eBPF, and that's what the organizations are hearing, and they bring you in as a consultant and say, you know what, I want to do some something with eBPF. I might not know exactly what it is, but I heard some networking and some load <laughs> balancer things. Um, and yeah. and you say, you know what, certainly I could do that. But is that what's best for the customer if I write some, let's say, custom eBPF capability and it does exactly what they what they would like it to do? And now I'm no longer consulting with that organization. Now who's carrying it and feeding and, and maintaining it? And so that's definitely where it starts to become that slippery slope, I think, especially for the analyst is. Yes, people want to hear about those things, but is it something that's actually sustainable in the market at the moment? Yeah, in the market or in the in the company. Anybody can take people's money, man. Anybody can go in, so there's the buzzword and go in. So that's kind of like whatever. Uh, you're you're you hitting know? you're hitting one of the challenges that we were having in, in our interactions is is not fitting in the category. I do agree with you. If they were like, hey, here's a buzzword or a hot category, then they'll catalog all the vendors that, that ascribe to that thing. But if you're outside of, you know, one of these categories that they're used to, it's, it's very hard to break through in my experience. They, they, they sort of, they sort of end up with a, well, that's not something that our customers understand, which is, is reasonable, but then it becomes really hard for, for, you know, to, um, within their their reporting infrastructures, you just you just fall through the crack. And I've heard, you know, that that happens a lot with new tech. Um, well, it's the the mar market education it, challenge. Yeah. Well, and if they define it as a thing, then then on the flip side, you can be like, oh, this is a thing that maps to a Gartner or a Forrester or an IDC, you know, topic area. You know, we have some tools to deal with some of this stuff with 
I'm, I'm kind of a pain driven uh, person. So what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And, and then really not the up the hierarchy, they have theirs, but then down below, that's where you're getting the buy-in, so on and so forth. The real workers that are doing the grunt work, shoulder to shoulder work and trying to get tease out that synergy between, oh, what's the hot buzzword and what is it that you really will really solve your problem? We have some language for that and well, you know, like in software, but in really in any tech, you've got non-functional requirements, functional requirements, those types of things where that that's kind of way of describing their pain and you get that, right? And, um, and then you have the buzzwords, you know, you have cloud native, eBPF, you know, all these things like that. And what people just want to, um, I mean, you, you have to manage, you have to know that people want to have a successful project under their belt when they're higher up the hierarchy and oh, say, yeah. we implemented blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is going on, you know, forever, right? Um, think back in the 90s with SAP, where people that some municipality or some big entity, we want to implement SAP, $150 million later, they implemented 10% of it and said it was a success, you know, kind of thing. Um, and it was just madness, right? So it, on the smaller scale, this is what happens over and over again. And so our, our jobs, if you're going to be more to the left of that technological innovation kind of bell curve thing, uh, trying to make it to where those people who are can, can kind of um, sustain that early adopter side or the early majority side and trying to successfully bring it through. Well, why do you want that? Well, that company over there, they seem to not, they have, I don't know, iteration cycles of a month or a couple of weeks. And we're six months. This is Toko. We're six months. We're a year or whatever. Yeah, you get a security patch and you can't deploy for six months, right? And they, they, they feel pain. And it's okay. Well, it looks like you're ready to, here's a solution. Maybe you, you should have immutable infrastructure, whatever, right? So. Yeah. So, I was somebody else going to go. I wanted to take that into hype cycles because I think that's actually you're you're right on the line with with where the hype cycles go. Um, right? Because what there's there's an element I, like the Gartner stuff, and and part of this is top of mind for me because we got happily you know included as representative vendors and in. in uh, a batch of hype cycles because everything infrastructure automation was included in. We got we got named there, rack ended. Um, but the the way I've read hype cycles in the past is you know at the top of that hype cycle, which is they call the peak of inflated expectations, is actually not. It's the crossing the chasm thing. So you're like this is this is people are talking about this tech, but they don't know how it fits, right? What's to your point on this stuff? It was like, you know, I, I don't know if I, you know, how to spin up our team or if it's going to be long-term or anything like that. It's not until it's it's on that, that downslope that people have like started to standardize on the tech. And it's, I think maybe this is intrinsic in the industry, but, you know, I've, I, I used to misread those things much more than, um, 
actually, I've not so much more. I used to misread those, right? Oh, look, this, this is at the peak. Yay. <laughs> not necessarily good from an enterprise perspective. Yeah, it seems with the hype cycles, you also, if you're kind of a, a good craftsman, artisan, you're really trying to help people with what you're doing and implement good solutions. You're up against people who they're, they'll sell whatever, and they're going to take advantage of that hype cycle. So um, you're, you know, depending on where you're at, you know, whatever's hot or earlier, um, let's just say I'm kind of way in the cloud native space with Kubernetes. Doesn't yes. seem like, doesn't seem, but I guess it is really, uh, you know, still in that hype cycle earlier part. Um, but yeah, it, it, everybody and their mother's trying to say it's going to solve every single problem and we can implement it with band-aids, whatever, and you'll be it, it's the greatest. And you're in there trying to say, all right, maybe it's not a good solution for you for the security. We just had what last week, the the um, security side. What was it? Multi-tenancy and eBPF. Can it? Well, well, what's the implications of that? It, can we do it? Right? Um, you know, uh, they might not. They might. It might not be a good fit if you're trying to do it with that. But somebody will come through and sell it. And 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 you're if you're on the side of trying to do a good solutions and someone else is able to come through and say, we'll sell it to you regardless for maybe cheaper price or whatever. It looks more sexy. That's, that's that hype cycles. That's the pain that I see that the struggle for as somebody in trying to be a craftsman inside of that space. Wait, but you're, I, I guess I'm confused on the pricing on the pricing piece. Do you see mm -hmm. that as, as creating a market? That people can compete around price on. Um, I guess if you're, what is it like the, the whole uh, technological innovation thing comes from the innovators dilemma book. What's his name? Clayton Christensen, I want to say, and his whole thing was that the original disruptive. They popularized that that word. Um, it's supposed to be kind of cheaper for doing something like the, he uses the example of Honda um, um, engines in dirt bikes and that no one wanted to ride dirt bikes in the sixties and all this. And then it turned into Honda became really good at making these bulletproof engines that can get sand in them. And, and it started, they started being able to be disrupted because they put them in their cars or they've used that same techniques in other places. That's kind of how disruptive is supposed to work. Um, not all technologies are disruptive. So you, you've got to, with the hype cycle, manage that. Like some of it is, this is new technology and you're going to pay a lot. You know, like what? <laughs> <laughs> That's not how it's supposed sure, to work. Yeah. Right? Um, so the pricing, though, if you're talking about disruptive stuff, it's supposed to be, I mean, to, not to go too long into it, but basically it's based off of, it's the innovator's dilemma basically is, Good managers make bad decisions. Good managers do exactly what a customer wants. Yeah, they do. They want more. Oh, the customer wants more of the same. Yeah. And so they want more and more and more of the same. You heard the telcos. They want more and more and more of the same. They want, oh, can we just have 
faster VMs or whatever. They, they want more of the same. And the innovator, I didn't say the innovator, the disruptor comes in with this other technology that is cheaper. Um, and the reason why the, the manager can't even see this technology is because the profit is too small, right? So he used the example of um, at IBM, if you, and this is written in the 90s, so whatever these numbers, but yeah. in IBM, if you had a new project and it was a, it saved or made a million dollars, it won't even turn someone's head. Right. They will not, it doesn't matter. And so it's, disruptions are made to, they, they cannot, managers cannot solve the innovator's dilemma. The, the solution in the other book, Innovator Solution, is supposedly, basically, you just buy, if you're a big company, you buy companies that already solved it, essentially. But um, how does that go with the hype cycles? They, the, the people that you're talking with, managers and all, as a consultant, you shouldn't be um, susceptible to what they call the resource-based economics. You shouldn't be susceptible to the customer is always right. You should be able to be sensitive to disruptive technologies. Um, so that, again, you're touching on pro, uh, pricing and all that stuff, and all of it comes from those books. All the stuff that's out now is kind of bite-sized it's, it's of that. It's how we yeah. ended, but it's how we end up with startups being able to promote new technologies, right? It, I, I'm, yeah. I will, I, I don't... I saw this when I was at Dell. It's the same same problem. It, it costs so much for them to spin up a project. It costs a lot of money just for them to say no to projects. Frankly, um, the you know that that's a lot of what what you know I avoid by being a startup is I'm like you know we don't need it to be a billion dollar yes to to start moving forward. I can go ahead and do it, and then I'd be you know to me I become a time machine for. Yeah. For, for, for somebody like Adele, right? They would, they would, that's how I used to look at it. It's like, well, we thought about this idea five years ago, but we didn't do it. They did, you know, I can basically rewind the clock five years and pretend like I said yes to something five, you know, um, five years ago. That's, that's, and, and put all the investment in and things like that. It's in some ways, it's a lot cheaper for them to do that than it is for them to say, say yes and then work on an idea for five years. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, so difficult yeah you're time machine you're doing like virtualization in like 2000 or something some fool way before everybody right so um you know and then you know everybody else we you know it's hard to see oh this thing this is going to be hot in two years oh no it'll be eight years that's, <laughs> the, like, other, oh. that's the, the other very true challenge with it is it takes um a lot more time even even without the you know, even if you had the resources for somebody like Dell, I don't know why I'm picking on Dell. And that's, I think, a challenge with the with the the analysts here is they are they are sort of living in you know the IT environment from a couple of years ago, and then they're trying to ease out what you know companies like me are starting to feed into market. What's what's going to hit? Um, I know we listen to what what the analysts say a lot because part of the adoption curve is listening to where the the customers are ready to see it. It's, 
it's actually very hard to find early adopters. <laughs> and you're right about it being more expensive to find an early, you know, early adopters pay a lot of money uh, for that advantage. Is the, you know, maybe it's not always um, cash money. It could be time. It could be opportunity risk, um, you know, to get that, that perceived advantage. But, hmm. But do you, do you think that the enterprises read the hype cycle or even the, the measure quadrant ones even more. I'll get there in a second. Read the hype cycle and are like, I'm waiting until we're past the hype curve. No, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> no. So there's always going to be that 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 personal interest is: Am I a CIO? Am I a CTO? Am I a VP of infrastructure looking to looking to make my name? Uh, either in the organization or, or in the industry for uh, another potential opportunity and looking to do something that is seen as transformative. Because uh, in, in many ways, let's say, let's say that they're, on, they're running VMware and you know what, maybe Kubernetes and containerization isn't necessarily what's best for the organization right now or in the next 12 to 24 months. But you know what, I decide... We're going to start doing some Kubernetes stuff. We're going to take all of the pain that comes along with it. We're, we're just going to bear the brunt of it. And then at the end of 24 months, we got some apps in Kubernetes in production. And now I've got a, a major item to add to my checklist. Well, not, not only that, but again, as you described, like it takes 24 months to, to get a project on Kubernetes from zero to production ready. Well, if you're if you're a small company, maybe twelve months, but but still, um, you you have to plan two years in advance if if you're even considering the, te the technology. So, um, either you you adopt er uh, as early as viable, assuming that the technology has stabilized. And then when it becomes commonplace, you hit the ground running, or you adopt late, and then you're an additional two years late to the party, which means that your competitors have gained a hand over you. Um, and this also plays, uh, again, like going back into the, the, the gardener side of things, um, on, on, on the C-level decisions, like, Yes, they're the ones who are looking to make a name for themselves, uh, as you even said, Martez. But there's also the ones who are looking to towards the longevity plan of the company and and, and, and saying like, well, even if, if this doesn't make sense for us now, will it make sense for us in the future? And if so, when do we need to start adopting it? There's also the risk of, or the wisdom in not adopting. So, I mean, we've got a graveyard of technologies that we all forget about. I mean, if you remember Calm from the 90s, you know, there's things people didn't adopt it. And uh, that was a win, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's not free to adopt the wrong thing. Exactly, yeah. I, yeah. 
But the, if you were to look at the hype cycle from that perspective and say, all right, I'm going to play with stuff that's on the rise or at the top, but my organization is a, on a is a two or three year ado- you know adoption. Um, that's that's probably a good you know it's a reasonable strategy to be looking at that. Um, you know, looking looking at those things is telling you where your peers are headed, potentially. potentially. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, and then the mine would be is the real question is, let's say the the peers adopt it, is it really providing them a competitive advantage, or do we believe there's a competitive advantage as a technologist? Ah. <laughs> uh. You know, uh, that's a that's a good question. The competitive advantage thing is interesting. Look at markets or sorry, industries that were the industry was very successful. So medical and um, I, you can use medical as an example. They were in like a time capsule. If you would go into a medical um, large medical companies in the mid 90s and stuff, they were doing things that people had already learned 10 years ago, but they were making, they were failing at doing things that people had learned. They were adopting flow, but because they had such a high profit margin or whatever, um, tel- you know, sometimes telecoms like that too. Um, but whatever industry that the industry is successful, they don't, I've seen that they are piss poor in technology. They don't care about they'll adopt slow or whatever they'll spend a whole bunch of money on i went someplace and they were they had this huge um setup with like fiber channel stands with their database and all this other stuff and it was ridiculous it was like definitely over 50 million dollar setup and, it, and the way that the the databases were i'm sorry the way that the connections were set up they were you move some a mouse on the screen and every millisecond it was sending a query to the database it was so horrible and they they just ate it they didn't they, they didn't care they just would buy purchase more equipment all this stuff and it looked like they didn't care um so because they were so successful you know they were writing their own operating systems for their equipment for their medical equipment, not using, not using, um, Linux or BSD, whatever. Oh, I see. So instead of going with, with commodity, uh, systems, they, they kept the, the entrenched interests of those companies would keep, keep returning back to, um, yeah. proprietary systems. Yeah. Okay. yeah. To be fair, th- those are also regulated industries. So, uh, in many cases, it is not possible to use commodity systems because they have not been certified. So, <laughs> having to, to create your own uh, from scratch uh, because you can then certify yourself. But I mean, that's a can you can you can you imagine trying to sell writing your own scheduler, your own? Kernel, but you really they don't, they don't care about the technical <laughs> merits. They don't care about the technical merits. They care about the control. Well, the question becomes: if, if if that's what's best for the business, why not? It's a, it was basically a failure. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah. That's why not. 
I mean, to, to, to make an analogy of like more modern uh, equivalents of same kind of issues is like, for example, um, prosthetics. They're, they're insanely expensive. And, and yes, you can, these days you can 3D print one yourself, but you cannot certify it. So, so there's the divide between someone selling you a prosthetic that has to be certified and you making your own because, well, if it breaks, you, you're not going to sue yourself. Uh, say, same happens on, on the technology side, like on the, the IT side things is that, again, it's it, it, by, by nature of the regulation, it, it has to move slow. Like take for example federal certification for for anything that that related to to U.S. federal business, like you have to continuously certify it, and basically most companies that do that they they certify once a year, and if they miss that deadline, then well they need to wait another year to certify it. You just cannot have rapid development uh, under those kind of constraints. Are, are we as an industry too focused on rapid? That's um, interesting to us. Yeah. I, and I <laughs> definitely true. I mean, part of what we're talking about with the analysts is they're focused on the, they're, they're talking to the enterprise who has a much slower adoption window um, or has to live with the, you know, frankly, as vendors, a lot of times we're just, we're always in the sell cycle. We're dealing with the new thing. We're not living with the consequences of, um, I say this, I, I'm, we're, we have a customer who's got four-year-old versions of the software and we're encouraging them to update, but we're not operating that software day to day. We're living in the new, new where everything's, you know, fixed and clean, um, it, it depends on, on on the customer. Like again, like if you if you're a governmental customer, then velocity is not the highest priority. It, right. Like there, it's stability and security. But if you're dealing with with, with an like an, an end user, like a typical consumer, well, that that's essentially what what sunk BlackBerry. BlackBerry was selling on stability, on 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 safety, mm. and they got outsold by iPhones and Android, who 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 promised new stuff quickly. So, it, yeah, it, it depends. That's that's an yeah. Well, that actually brings that's, up a, that's a really a good disruption example. Really good point in regards to potentially difference for, from a consumer perspective as opposed to business, not to say that businesses don't act like consumers uh, in, in many ways. The, the, the consumer focuses on minimis, minimization of effort and maximization of value. So as a result, if you're in the market of selling to consumers, you have to adapt quickly to, to the demands. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, this is 
this divide is not going to go away uh, quickly. So you you have to make a conscious decision as to um, what strategy you're you're going to adopt. That's okay. I, I'm, <laughs> I think that's a good a good place to hang the conversation. There's a whole. I think there's a whole question on. You know, it's a separate topic on. You know, can we slow down the go go go? Do we want to, and what's the risk? But I, I think enterprises need to find that balance. So I don't. I don't think we can because of venture capital money coming into the the industry. Uh, yeah, that's the nice thing about slowdowns in market is they they. You know. I do think people take a breath a little bit and, and say, okay, let me get the stuff I've got working. Or maybe it's just the cycle we're in where we've, we've been changing stuff so much. Um, and a hat tip to um, podcast. Um, Brian was doing a, a Sunday thing about boor- it's boring. You know, technology, it's okay to be boring. Um, Brian Gracely. And um, yeah, it's there. We we go through cycles where people figure out how things work. And they they slow down a little bit. Maybe that's that's where the analysts sort of live. But thank you. Uh, interesting to hear uh, broad perspectives on on what analysts are doing, and then how the market is influencing the analysts, which is what I, I think we were talking about more than anything else, rather than the opposite way around. All right, everybody. Thank you. Next mm-hmm. week, I'm on the road, Thanks. but we're we're doing a KubeCon prep uh, for next Tuesday. Just talking through, make, you know, up up making some predictions, then we can measure it after the after the fact and see what, what people think is going to be interesting. And then I'll, uh-huh. I'll use that partly as my uh, conference checkout list and see if I can confirm things. Cool, everybody. Have a good one. All right. Okay. Cheers. Yeah. If you're not consuming or reading analyst material, um, then in a way you're missing out on something. It's not always what they say, but what motivates them to say it, what puts things on their radar, what doesn't get things on their radar. I think we answered some of those questions, but be interesting to go back and continue to think about it. Especially I wanted to go back and talk about Magic Quadrants, which we didn't get a chance to talk about where the vendors actually pick the leaders and the laggards out of a group of vendors in the space. So please join us at the 23.cloud. You can be part of that conversation when we have it or any one of the other topics that we have. We post our schedule and invite you to join us. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or 
just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.